This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is the second episode in a three-part series. Please listen to part one, An Unidentified Man, before beginning part two. This episode discusses crime scenes and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is the fall line. The circumstances were were strange. Um, He would call periodically and he would come by. Um, The last time that he came by, he actually came to ask if he could live with me at my grandmother's house. And unfortunately, because of the way that we grew up, my grandmother was raising her grandkids. So we had a house full of people and um, there wasn't any room. We were in a two bedroom duplex. So um, I had to let him know, you know, there wasn't any room. I wish there there was so that he would be able to stay. Um, and then after that, I, I never heard from him again. So um, it would have been the latter part of 98 after I, you know, never heard from him again. Last episode, we told you about an unidentified homicide victim in Nashville, Tennessee, a case from April of 1998. Eventually buried as John Doe 19, the victim was found rolled in a carpet that had been dumped on a dead-end street in North Nashville. The carpet had been set on fire and John Doe 19's body was badly burned. It took some time for the medical examiner to determine that the victim was a young adult black male, about 5'11 and around 150 pounds. His body was found on April 13th. On April 15th, 1998, a missing persons report was filed with the Metro Nashville Police Department. The person in question was Lorian Nicholson, an 18-year-old Nashville resident who'd attended Pearl Cone High School. He was a young adult black male, Six foot one and 150 pounds. And according to his mother and his uncle, he'd been missing since April 12th. The day after Lorian's missing persons report was filed, a tornado struck Nashville. It did millions of dollars in damage, and Tennessee was in a state of emergency. And somehow, the two cases, John Doe 19 and Lorian Nicholson, were not compared in that week. And if nothing else had happened, it's likely that they would have been compared eventually. But that chance wouldn't come, because on April 20th, five days after Lorian's report was filed, a woman called police and reported that he had returned. This woman identified herself as a neighbor and said her name was Pauline Venable. Lorian's case was closed. His family was not informed of the case closure, and his safe return was not verified with them. He would not be run against John Doe 19 or any other unidentified victims anywhere. John Doe 19's case 
It continued, but it was cold by 2001. A Tennessean article published in 2013 and written by Brian Haas quotes Sergeant Gary Kemper, who was then in charge of the cold case unit. Asked how the cases could have failed to be compared, Kemper said, quote, they just didn't follow up correctly. A mistake was made. When you look at it now, it's hard to understand why. He was able to verify that the investigation into John Doe 19's death had been extensive, including out-of-state travel, but without Lorian's open case file, a comparison could not be made. That comparison would eventually come, but it would take more than 14 years. To tell that story, we need to start with Amira and Candace, who are Lorian's sister and stepsister, respectively. On April 12, 1998, Amira was 12. Candace had been 18 for one day. And without them, the cases of John Doe 19 and Lorian Nicholson would have never converged. We spoke to Amira and Candace multiple times this spring. They filled us in on every aspect of Lorian's case. They're truly the experts, and they're also our best source of information on Lorian's life. Lorian Nathaniel Nicholson was born on October 6, 1979. His sister Amira came along in 1985, and Candace joined the family too, as her father was in a relationship with Amira and Lorian's mother. Six months Lorian's junior, Candace felt close to her stepbrother. She visited on weekends. Eventually, she went to the same school as Lorian for her 8th through 11th grade years. Like Amira, she describes her stepbrother as quiet and kind and patient. When we spoke to Candace, she talked to us about their experiences growing up and told us a little more about Lorian's personality. I mean, he was a, a typical big brother. You know, he was very protective over his sisters, um, especially Amira, <laughs> because she was the baby. But um, he was very loving. He was quiet um, sometimes, but he was also very funny. Um he was just a lovable guy. I mean, he he didn't have any any enemies in school. You know, everyone loved him. He was called Flagpole because he was so tall and skinny. <laughs> um, but with his family, his name was Meat. Um, that's what they called him, uh, Meathead or or Meat. So um, <laughs> that's what that's what we called him. Do you know where that came from? I I don't. Most times it it's affiliated with uh, the size of someone's head, <laughs> but <laughs> I never I never asked. I just went along with it because I was approximately eight or nine when I when I met him, and um, we just clicked from the time that we met. He, and I just felt love for him and Amira um, when when I met them because I had an older sister. Um, well, I have an older sister and she's like six years older than me. So I never had um, a brother or sister that was closer to, to my age that would do the things that, you know, I would like to do. Like he would take us to the park um, that was down the street from where they lived at that time. And he he liked to play basketball also. So he would play basketball, but he would always keep an eye on us as he was playing to make sure that no one was bothering us. Um, yeah, he was a great big brother. Amira, the baby of the family, 
spent parts of her childhood living with her father, which meant away from Lorian. But they were in the same house for years, too, especially when Amira was small. We asked her to describe their childhood together and their relationship. I think some of the earliest memories is that um, my mom used to work the midnight shift when I was younger. Um, And he used to do my hair for school the next day. Like, it wasn't the greatest style, but he tried. (laughs) And then he uh, he used to run track. So, actually, when I was in middle school, I ran track as well, but I was mostly inspired to run by him um I don't know if you're familiar with the area of Nashville but around the the Charlotte not like the Park Avenue area um we would run there was a street back there called Chamberlain that we used to live on and um Lorraine was a distance runner so we would run from our street on Chamberlain to Centennial Park, around Centennial Park, and back home. So he kind of, like, conditioned me to be able to run distance, even though I hated it. Like, and when he would catch me getting winded, like, we would stop and walk or whatever. But I used to love going on those runs with him for some reason, because when we get to the park, um, we would feed the ducks and stuff like that. He was really sweet. I used to love running. we go go... Um, Saturday and Sunday morning, like on the days that he didn't have his meat, we would go run. Track was a constant for Lorian, who sometimes had a turbulent home life. He was praised by coaches, and he often placed in competitions. He was a member of the Music City Track Club, and in the summer of 1995, his team competed at the USA Track and Field Meet in San Jose, California. That year, Lorian and two teammates placed second, nationally, in the 15- to 16-year-old boys' 3,200-meter relay race. And Lorian ran at school, too, where he was nicknamed Flagpole. Several of his track wins appeared in the sports section of the local newspaper. Another major influence in Lorian's adolescence was his participation in Nashville's I Have a Future program. According to his sisters, he had close relationships with the program's mentors. A mid-90s study describes I Have a Future as a life option program based on African philosophy to systematically address violence and attitudes reinforcing the use of violence. The program was begun by a professor at Meharry Medical College, Dr. Henry Foster. Anyone old enough to remember the Clinton presidency might recall that Dr. Foster was Clinton's nominee for Surgeon General. Dr. Foster's I Have a Future program was, according to his autobiography, quote, designed to counter teenage pregnancy in two Nashville housing projects and encourage students to stay in school. Lorian was quoted in an Associated Press article about I Have a Future and Dr. Foster's Surgeon General nomination. Lorian said of Dr. Foster and the program, quote, you have to have a tremendous heart to care about some kids who come from the housing projects. He and other participants were interviewed about tutoring, community service, and other opportunities provided by I Have a Future. But Lorian also faced a number of challenges. We don't have access to his medical history, so what we present here are his sister's memories and what has been shared in the press since 2013. According to his mother, Lorian began dealing with mental health issues during his sophomore year of high school. While we didn't speak to her for this series, 
she did several interviews with the Tennessean in 2013. In those interviews, she indicated that he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia during his sophomore year of high school. Soon after that time, Lorian dropped out. So that would have been late 1995, the semester after his track wins, or possibly early 1996. Candace and Amira, they knew something was going on with their brother, but they weren't given details. In a 2013 interview with Brian Haas, Candace remembered that, quote, it was like he was confused as he was talking. It didn't make a lot of sense, jumping from one thing to another, not completing a thought. Amira wasn't living with Lorian at the time, and neither was Candace, so they have limited information outside of what he told them during phone calls. They knew that he seemed depressed and that he'd left school. And they remember that sometime during what would have been his late sophomore or early junior year, he decided to go into Job Corps. If you're unfamiliar with Job Corps, here's a quote from its own .gov website. Quote, Job Corps is the largest nationwide residential career training program in the country and has been operating for more than 50 years. Job Corps is run by the U.S. Department of Labor and is something like a cross between the military and a vocational boarding school. It's described as a place where young people ages 16 to 24 can receive, quote, tuition-free, their high school education, training for meaningful careers, and assistance with obtaining employment. The program includes GED and high school equivalency training, college credits, and, quote, career skill training. Participants either, quote, enter the workforce or an apprenticeship, go on to higher education, or join the military. Young people spend up to three years living at Job Corps in dormitory-style situations, where they, quote, are offered career planning, on-the-job training, job placement, residential housing, food service, driver's education, health and dental care, a bi-weekly basic living allowance, and a clothing allowance, end quote. And according to CBS News, the publicly funded Job Corps centers, about 125 in all across the country, are individually run by private companies. There's been a good bit of controversy surrounding the program, especially in recent years. The program is designed to help students who are at risk of dropping out or staying out of high school, but there have been charges that some campuses function more like prisons. The New York Times covered accusations of misallocation of funds and reports of underreported violence, of drugs, safety and sanitation issues, all faced by students. Other recent critiques, including an article from the Wall Street Journal, argue that Job Corps placement rates are much lower than previously believed and that students may not truly increase their earning potential. Job Corps is perhaps most infamous for a 2015 murder that occurred on one of its campuses, which has now been closed. The death of 17-year-old Jose Amaya Guadardo. According to the Miami Herald, Jose was murdered by fellow students who, quote, lured him to the woods where he was repeatedly hacked with a machete and forced into a shallow grave as he lay mortally wounded. The crime has cast a pall over Job Corps reporting and the program, which serves an overwhelmingly Black and Latinx student body, was considered for major federal cuts in 2018. We know relatively little of Lorian's time in Job Corps, except that he left after a year. Although reporting on Lorian's GED scores has varied, with some newspapers reporting that he passed the test, Amira told us that he failed by just five points. Frustrated and dealing with depression and other mental health issues, 
Lorian returned to Nashville, to his mother's home. It was around this time, his sisters think it was late 1996 or early 1997, that Lorian spent time as an inpatient at Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital. This may be where he actually received his formal diagnosis of schizophrenia. His sisters can't be sure because they only became aware of the diagnosis much later on. And due to HIPAA, Candace and Amira have never been able to speak to a medical provider about his precise diagnosis. They know that he was prescribed medicine, which his mother told police when she filed the missing persons report was, quote, for schizophrenia. Amira and Candace's memories of that time in Lorian's life aren't precisely linear, and they both receive different information at different times. But their recollections together can give us a sense of what he was dealing with in 1997 and 1998. Well, I do know that when I used to um, go visit with my mom and my brother, we did go see him at Vanderbilt one time. He was in um, Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital. Why he was there, they didn't share that with me. Um, But... One of the last times that I was around him, he had, like, started smoking cigarettes and stuff. So all of it was new. All of it was new to me. So it it did seem a bit strange. But as far as schizophrenia, I never saw signs of that. So when you were seeing him, when y'all went to visit him at Vanderbilt, he was making sense and seeming his normal self? Yeah, to me, he was. I would say he was probably just a bit depressed, but I don't know. Like, what I know now of schizophrenia from, like, being in school and all that, I don't think that it was schizophrenia, but I don't know because you know how people like to keep secrets from kids. Yeah, and it seems like if he had been at Vanderbilt for a time, he would have had a chance for the medication to be on board and be working. So if he was having some disorganized thinking, it may have Mm -hmm. been treated at that point. Yeah, I don't know how long he was there either. Right. I just know when I used to go visit my mom, he'd be the first person I asked for. And most of the time he would be right at the house. But I do remember that particular time we did go to Vanderbilt to go see him. Candace, who was finishing high school at the time of her stepbrother's hospitalization, remembers talking to him on the phone while he was still at Vanderbilt. He called me when he was in Vanderbilt um, Psychiatric Hospital. Um, This was prior to the last time that I saw him. So um, he did sound a little strange on that phone call. I couldn't really make out exactly what he was trying to relay to me. Um, but I tried to keep him on the phone as, as long as I could to try and, and understand, but it's like his thoughts were just racing. Um, and you could tell in the way that he was speaking. So it wasn't anything like the, the way that we would speak to each other before it wasn't that type of conversation. I couldn't grasp anything that he was saying to me, nothing I couldn't put together or make sense of anything that he was saying. Right. And then shortly after that, he was released from that hospitalization. 
Yes, he was. So you felt like maybe they had gotten things under control with medication? Right. Um, I, I knew that there was something strange going on. Not I, I wasn't aware of what his diagnosis was. And he was released, so I thought maybe that he was okay. Here's what Candace and Amira know. As much as they can know anything about that year of Lorian's life. When he returned from Job Corps, Lorian was staying with his mother. There are some reports of him staying with other relatives, but his sister's recollection is that he remained at home. Lorian didn't drive, and he didn't have a job that last year. According to Amira and Candace, he largely kept to himself, and when he left the house, he'd walk to visit family. Mostly, that meant his uncle John, who lived in an apartment on Jefferson Street. John was listed on the original missing persons report as one of the last people to see Lorian. The report actually states that he was living with John, who was identified as his brother and not his uncle, but his sisters say Lorian was with his mother just a short walk away from Uncle John's apartment. Lorian would usually take a shortcut through a few yards and driveways to make it there. When Lorian's mother spoke to the Tennessean in 2013, she told reporter Brian Haas that since Lorian had returned from Job Corps, his hair had begun to go gray, though he was just 18 years old. She also said that he'd begun smoking cigarettes. Both Amira and Candace thought that he seemed down. They said depressed. But in conversation, they didn't experience the same disorganized thinking that had occurred prior to his stay at the hospital. We don't know what medications he was prescribed or how regularly he took them. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. On April 12th of 1998, Lorian left his mother's home on foot. No one at least no one who's been willing to tell the story, knows what happened after that. He was probably heading to his uncle's house, though he did have a few friends in town. While he was quiet in high school, he still socialized. His sisters recall him going to dances, and Amira remembers a picture, now the one that's actually most shared of Lorian online, of her brother smiling. In it, he wears a light blue denim shirt with a white t-shirt underneath, she remembers when he brought them home from school and that he'd planned on giving a copy to a girl. But by April of 1998, there weren't many people in regular contact with Lorian. His sisters would call to check in, but they didn't know any of the major events or worries in his life. He was in a holding pattern, home from Job Corps, out of the hospital, halfway through his 18th year. When we spoke to Amira, she discussed her memories of that April. She recalled that no matter what, she'd been able to reach her brother by phone. And then one day, she couldn't. So in your mind, there wasn't really anything 
big going on with Lorian. Like, you don't remember feeling worried about him or anything? Well, I always worried about him. Uh, our mom, she was on drugs. So I always worried about him. Do you remember the first time that you heard that he may have been missing or that people weren't knowing where he was? Um, I know he used to call me all the time when I was at my dad's house. Um, I used to talk to him like every day and some time had passed and I hadn't talked to him. Um, so it's like in my mind, I felt like something was wrong, but I was trying not to think that way. And then like I, as I mentioned, um, my mom, she's on drugs, you know, so phones would get disconnected and, you know, it'd be times that I wouldn't be able to call or whatever. But whenever I asked her where he was around that time, I remember, um, she would say he's outside somewhere. So like, it never dawned on me. Like I never, I just felt like something was wrong because he stopped calling. But by her telling me that he was outside somewhere, I figured maybe he just would call me later. But but time had passed and he still never called. So that's when I started to, to question her to find out where he was and what happened or, you know, has she heard from him? This is where the official record dates to mark the last day Lorraine was seen, when the missing persons report was filed, and when John Doe 19 was found, exists completely outside of the experiences of Candace and Amira. Because they didn't know their brother was missing and a report was made, they would have had no reason to connect him to the body that was found on Mary Street. And that's if they'd heard about the incident in the first place. They don't remember all these years later perhaps they wouldn't have considered the possibility. Mary Street was several miles from their mother's home and not an area that Lorraine frequented. Amira especially grew more confused. When she was visiting or living with her mother after 1998, she didn't have a clear idea where her brother was or when he'd be back. She spoke with us in March 2020 about that period in her life. She told us that, eventually, she demanded an answer. And that confrontation created more questions. So there were rumors about him being in a mental institute in Kentucky. And then she told one of his uh, childhood friends, because he'd asked where he was. My mom and I, was we were coming back from the store. And to fast forward, at this time, I moved back with her. Um, I was in high school at this point. <clears throat> and uh, we were coming back from the store. And one of his childhood friends had asked her uh, where he was and she said he's in the army and I just told the friend I was like she's lying he's not in the army she doesn't know where he is you know because we were hearing like so many (laughs) different things I'm just like you just don't know where he is so that sparked an argument with my mom and I and that's when she told me that she had filed a missing persons report on him and she didn't know where he was and she didn't tell the friend that because she didn't want people in her business 
Amira isn't sure why her mother kept the missing persons report to herself. And of course, no one in the family knew that the case had been closed. Operating on what information she did have, Amira decided to try and find out more. If there really was a case, and if so, where it stood. I didn't even believe that a um, missing persons report had been filed. So I went through her things to find out if he was in a mental institute. I, I went through her, you know, her, uh, her dresser drawers where her paperwork was to see if I could see where he was or if I could see any traces of a missing persons report. I was able to locate his social security card, his birth certificate, but nothing that, that gave me any indication that he was in any mental hospital or in the military, nothing that showed me that he was, you know, that a missing persons report had been filed on him. I went to the records office at the police department to try to find out about a missing persons report. And that's when I found out she did, in fact, file one. And I was about 16, 16 or 17 at that time. So at that point, did you and Candace just sort of start trying to figure out what happened in every way that you could? Oh, yeah, I, most definitely. I called her and I let her know that I found the missing persons report. I remember giving her a copy of it. Um, there was some more information at the bottom of that report that we never could interpret. And I just dedicated basically whatever time I could to trying to find out where he was and what happened to him. Now, that bit about the information at the bottom of the report that Amira and Candace couldn't interpret, that was the information that would have signaled a second related report that the case was closed. But they didn't know that then, and they wouldn't know it for a decade. Thinking that Lorian's case was still open, they took the information they did have, and they reached out to whomever they could. But you know, like when you're a kid, nobody's really taking you seriously. Um, but I had found his dad's ex-wife. I'd even, his uncle, I believe, is deceased now, but I'd, I'd found him at that time to find out if he reached out to any of them, if they knew where he was. But everybody always wondered. Nobody knew where he was. So I called a private investigator to try to see if they could take the information that I had discovered and and do something with it. Because I know that they have privileges and they know things that we don't know. And the man simply told me, well, I, I was like, look, I work at Champ Sports. I make $5 an hour plus commission, but I'm really looking for my brother. And I asked him, can you help me? And he said, <laughs> the thing I told him, I was like, I have this missing persons report and I just need to know. And what he told me was, he said, um, with missing persons cases, you either find them or you don't. And people don't just disappear. Somebody kills them. Oh. That's what he said. But this was before we ever even knew what happened to him. Do you remember like what you felt at that time when he said that? Oh, I felt crushed. And I don't think that, I don't think he took me seriously because he never called me back. He, he took my brother's information. He said he'll, 
he'll, you know, do a little research and see what he can come up with and he'll call me back. He never called me back. So I just feel like, you know, this is a 17-year-old kid. You know, she's probably playing. Nobody's really missing. Where's the parents? He probably had all kinds of questions going on in his mind, but he never called me back. And I don't remember his name. <laughs> but I know it was a guy. I know I called him. I just looked in the phone book, and I just started calling people. And he was one of the people who answered. What I'm so amazed about is that in in other cases, the police might have been doing this footwork, but in Lorian's case, you and your sister were just like, okay, well, nobody else is doing it. Here we go. And y'all became investigators. Yeah. Crazy, right? Candace and Amira spent their spare moments on the phone, calling one official, one organization after another, hitting dead end after dead end. Candace remembered the frustration of feeling like they'd never get any closer to finding their brother. It was kind of hard to get information. Um, we did get his social from his father and from a missing persons report that Amira found. Because we had the social, you know, we were almost crying when speaking with the healthcare professionals and asking, can you just say yes or no? You know, don't, you don't have to give us any information. Can you just say yes or no if he was there? And, you know, I can't remember how many hospitals we called, but we called all the ones that we could think of um, or that we could find. And no one had any record of him being there. And so that's when the light bulb went off that something, something isn't right. Amira and Candace continued to search for Lorian throughout the 2000s. Spare moments were spent using the quickly developing internet technology, including early cold case forums and search engines, to try and find out anything they could about their brother and where he might have ended up. They watched the nightly news and they kept up with local crime reports. As social media took off, they made use of a new avenue of communication. Candace and Amira began to search for him on MySpace and then on Facebook, anywhere he might have left an imprint. Could he be living in another city under another name? They scoured every photo. And then in 2008, Amira faced another tragedy. Another of her brothers was murdered. During that time, she was in contact with the Metro Nashville police and had the chance to speak with an investigator about the homicide. While she was in the office, she explained that her other brother, Lorian, had been missing for a decade. She asked the detective if he could just look for any sign of Lorian via computer. Find out if there was activity on his social security number. Anything. Eventually, the check was run and it came back with nothing. Just a sealed juvenile record and the fact that Lorian had been issued a state ID in the 1990s. He'd had that same ID when he disappeared. In 2011... Candace reached out to the same detective Amira had spoken to in 2008 in hopes of getting more information on Lorian's case. Specifically, she'd seen a news report that concerned her. A news story that was, I believe, on News Channel 5, where um, they just said that there were 19 unidentified bodies um, that the morgue had. And because of the situation with not being able to locate him in any of the hospitals 
Then we asked the detective, well, I asked the detective if he could check to see if either one of those were my brother. And he said they were not. Right. In 2012, Candace contacted another detective in the cold case unit, Chad Holman, and began to email him about Lorian's case. Through their 2012 involvement with these detectives, Candace and Amira finally got Lorian's full missing persons report, both pages. Then they discovered that his case had been closed only five days after his mother had filed it. All the time they'd spent looking for him, making calls, scanning articles about missing persons. Shock isn't a strong enough word for what they felt. And at this time, we did not know that this report was closed. So, yeah, we had no idea that the report had been closed. We thought that it was an open case the whole time. There was a second form that they were making reference to. And I was telling the detective, I was like, there's a second form that this first form makes reference to, but I was never able to find that form. Like, nobody knows where it is. And within a day's time, he found the form. And he was like, well, somebody named Pauline Venable called in and and closed your brother's case. So that's when everything just started to get weird and freaky to us. They were completely mystified that a woman they'd never heard of, Pauline Venable, was mentioned in the report. Candace and Amira eventually found out more about her, but that didn't explain much. In fact, they aren't so sure that it was actually Pauline Venable who called the police in the first place. It turned out that Pauline Venable was a vague acquaintance of the family. She was an elderly woman and disabled and living in the care of her children. She was not the first person who might call police to report that someone she barely knew had returned home to a house that she didn't live in and never went to. Candace and Amira still have plenty of questions about this, but as Miss Venable has passed away, there aren't any answers coming. As the story has come to light, Pauline Venable's family has commented on various posts and articles. They express surprise and serious doubt that their mother and grandmother would have made such a call in the first place, and certainly not for nefarious purposes. But if it wasn't Pauline, then who and why? Though Lorian's case was open again, Amira and Candace were feeling confused and frustrated, and they wanted answers. It was the early fall of 2012, a hard time with Lorian's birthday coming up. Candace discussed this with us and told us what she ultimately decided to do about it. What would happen with a traumatic situation? Um, I would try and and not focus on it, you know, every year and just well, all throughout the year and just just pray that he was okay and that, you know, the story of him being in the hospital was true. But when it came around to the month of October, which is his birthday month, I would get into what I just, describe as a manic state and where I I can't sleep. I just focus on trying to find out any information. So that year, um, because I wasn't really getting any information from the police, I started um, again looking for mental health facilities in Kentucky and something, I just say that it was God 
that led me to look for unidentified bodies. So I typed in unidentified bodies. On September 26, 2012, more than 14 years after Lorian Nicholson disappeared, his sister Candace began a web search. She'd done it plenty of times before, but this time she was looking for John Doe cases. That story about the morgue and the unclaimed bodies had sparked something in her. That's what led her to the NamUs database, which had been online for only five years at that point. It also led her to the answers that she did and that she didn't want. Next time on The Fall Line, we'll bring you the third and final episode in our series on Lorian Nicholson and learn more about how Candace and Amira's research cracked one cold case and reopened another. We'd like to thank the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jessica Ann, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Scoring is by Maura Curry. You can find Fall Line merchandise in the Exactly Right Podswag store. Thank you.